Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. So it is living the dream, the last one. We've had six weeks, and this is, uh, this is the last one. Oh, the end of the story. Um, the end of the story of Joseph. It was actually about seven, ch- seven or eight chapters of Genesis we've covered, and in fact, this week, I'm gonna, we're doing a whistle-stop of about four of them, three or four of them. Um, I don't know if any of you played that car game when you were children where you would try and, we used to call it, my grandmother goes to Paris, and you think of a letter, and then one of you had to think of something beginning with that letter, the next person had to remember that one, and then think of something else, and the next person, you keep going around until someone can't remember the whole sequence. We seem to have had a habit on this thing that we always do, it's like in the TV series, we always do a little recap of what's gone before, and to save my voice and to give you something different, Judith is going to come and recap the story so far. So, I am going to give you 17 years of history in a very short time. The amazing thing with this teaching series is I've taught this story as a teacher countless times. But this time, God's given me treasure because I dig deeper into his word. So, that's a challenge. Dig deep and God will give you treasure and you'll find new things. So, it's been a great privilege to have this series. So... 17 years, we start with Joseph in the story. He's 17 years old. He's precocious. He's a pain. Thanks, Levi, for being my joke at the back, 17-year-old. So he's annoying, and he knows it slightly, so he needles his family all the time. He loves being the favorite. He gets a special coat. He gets special privileges. He's lets off jobs, and he however, is anointed by God. God uses him, anoints him with dreams and the interpretations later on. So he tells his family, however, he gloats about the dreams God's given him. Sheaves and stars are bowing down to him. And he tells them about that. The brothers are now already jealous, but even more so now. And they hate him and they think of a way to get rid of him. And so they decide when they see him coming from afar to go and see them as they're doing their jobs, they will get rid of him. They put him down a pit and he is taken out and sold to slave traders. They go back and tell their father he has been killed by a wild animal, showing the coat covered with blood because they killed a wild animal and coated it with blood. And Jacob, the father, is absolutely distraught. They, however, hide that from him. The slave traders take Joseph to Egypt, where he's sold to Potiphar, captain of the Pharaoh's guard. God looks after him while he's there. And he so pleases Potiphar with his leadership gifts that he's put in charge of the household. However, when there, the wife of Potiphar tries to seduce him. He resists her, but she accuses him of rape, and he's thrown into prison. Again, a very special prison where the king's own prisoners are kept. And there, again, God looks after him. He shows his leadership gifts. And he is put by the chief jailer in charge of the whole prison. After some time, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker join him. And each one of them has a dream. God gives Joseph the exact interpretation of those dreams. One in which the cupbearer is restored to his position and the other in which the baker is executed. 
He tells them the truth, though. And this happens, as he said, and he asks the cupbearer to tell Pharaoh about him. The cupbearer promptly forgets, and he's there for two more years in prison. And now Pharaoh has two dreams. He can't interpret them. Nobody can interpret them till the cupbearer remembers the man he met in prison. And there Joseph is called before Pharaoh, and God gives him the interpretation exactly of those dreams. The dreams predicted that Egypt would go through seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph, he saw, possibly, I believe, God in him, and that he puts Joseph in charge of all of Egypt with collecting and storing the food during the plentiful years to cover the famine years. When the famine comes, Egypt was okay and had food to spare. So lands from afar came to Egypt to buy it. Jacob, going back to his father, and his brothers were in Canaan. They were starving. So the brothers were sent by Jacob to Egypt to buy the grain. The brothers don't recognize Joseph. He recognizes them. And he plays lots of elaborate games with them to see if they've changed. A lot of the games are centered around Benjamin, who is now the youngest. And he's trying to see if the brothers will treat Benjamin better than they treated him. Little tests. Finally, he reveals himself to them and they're reconciled. And he tells them God was behind everything that's happened to him so that all their lives might be spared. He tells them to go home and get his father Jacob, and they all come to live in Egypt. Slide four. I'll read the key verses from this. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because... It was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God he made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Thank you, Judith. Thank you. Okay, so now the final part of the story, which we're covering from Genesis halfway through uh, chapter 45 to uh, chapter 50. The rest of the story, I'll again, I'll, I'll summarise it a bit like Judith has. At Pharaoh's instruction, the brothers, Joseph's brothers, are given carts loaded with the best of Egypt and they're sent back to Canaan. Jacob finally hears that his son is alive and he's overjoyed to hear that. And then Jacob and the brothers travel back to Egypt and on the way, Jacob has a vision from God 
where he says, God says to him this, and God spoke to Israel in a vision at night and said, Jacob, Jacob, here I am, he replied. I am God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again, and Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. So God confirms what Joseph has said, that he had been in this right from the beginning. And there is now a joyful reunion between Jacob and Joseph in Egypt. And Joseph then takes Jacob, his father, to see Pharaoh, and Pharaoh sends, uh, tells the Israelites to go and settle in the Goshen region of Egypt, which is the best part of the land, it says in the Bible. Uh, and they were shepherds, and the Egyptians didn't really look down on shepherds, so they were quite happy for them to go off and, and live in that bit of land. The famine then gets worse, and the desperate Egyptians start selling their livestock and everything to try and buy grain from Pharaoh and Joseph, who'd been storing it all up. Eventually, they sell their very land to Pharaoh. And then Joseph gives them seed to plant the land for themselves as long as they give one-fifth of the produce back to Pharaoh. And he establishes a law that carries on from generations. Eventually, the famine passes. And the Israelites increase in number and acquire, start to acquire property of themselves in Goshen. Jacob is now getting elderly and he makes Joseph promise to him that he will bury his father back in Canaan where his Isaac and Abraham were buried. Jacob then becomes ill and as he's very ill he calls Joseph to him so he can bless Joseph's own two sons who are called Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob tells him that he will treat Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons and giving them an equal share in his inheritance. And by doing this, he's actually effectively given Joel a, a Joseph a double portion. He's given it to his two sons. And he's overturned a rule which said the eldest son, it's in fact, you can find it in Deuteronomy 21, the eldest son should receive a double portion of their inheritance. So if you've got five sons, you divide your inheritance into six and you give the eldest one uh, two portions. The eldest son was Reuben. And although Reuben, if you read the story carefully, he didn't actually want Joseph to be thrown in, uh, to, sold to the slave traders. He was not there. He, tried to, he was the one who persuaded the other brothers not to kill Joseph. But Reuben did something very against his father, where he slept with his father's own concubine. And so he lost his right of the firstborn. And Jacob gives it to Joseph instead. He then gives a detailed prophecy about each son. It's in Genesis 49. It would be brilliant to study that at some point. And some of those um, prophecies are positive about the sons. A lot of them are not. Uh, Reuben, the eldest, is clearly rejected there because he slept with his father's concubine. Joseph is once again confirmed as his father's favourite. And there's an amazing part of the prophecy, which is given to Judah, um, which, which shows clear that he will be the line that will produce the Messiah. We'll just read that verse, which is Genesis 49.10. And jo uh, Jacob says this to Judah, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So that's an amazing prophetic word of the Old Testament, that Jesus would come from the line of Judah. Jacob then dies, and he is embalmed, and Joseph and Egyptians mourn him for 70 days, who is highly respected by the Egyptians as well. Then Joseph and a large part of uh, Jacob's family, along with members of Pharaoh's court, travel back to Canaan and bury uh, Jacob in the same cave as, as Abraham and Isaac, the cave of Machpelah, which is now in Hebron in, in, in Israel. Joseph and his family then return to Egypt, 
But the brothers are now a bit afraid of what Joseph will do to them because they think their father's been a restraining influence and they're now wondering, now that Jacob's dead, will Joseph get them for what they did to him all those years ago? And let's just read that part of the passage because this is probably the key thing that I'm going to be talking about today. So Genesis 50, uh, we read this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. Now, I don't know if he did, but this is what they said. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When the message came to him, Joseph wept. And I think that's because he had already forgiven them. They still didn't seem to get it. They hadn't get that previous passage we read at all. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So that is the end, well, the, or the end of Joseph's story, which is a few verses on from that. He continues to live with the Israelites in Egypt until he dies at the age of 110 years old. And before death, he asks for his own bones to be carried away from Egypt. And centuries later, Moses fulfills this wish in Exodus 13, 19. You read, when, the, when the Israelites leave in the Exodus, uh, they take Joseph's bones with them. So the series is called Living the Dream, spelt all American. Now, is it just me, or, or does that grate with you a bit? I mean, it, uh, it probably is just me, but it should be living the dream. That's how we speak in English, isn't it? Anyway, we had a big discussion in our Connect group after that first talk that Sim gave on this, when the title became clear. And we, we discussed, discussed whether this wasn't slightly misappropriating the story of Joseph. He had literal dreams, real dreams at night. And although he had some inkling of what they implied, he had no idea about how this was going to pan out. And this series title perhaps tends to give the impression it's about us living out our own grand dreams or hopes for our life. But if you remember that first talk that Sim gave, he clearly said that unlike the song in the Joseph, Amazing Joseph musical, any dream will not do. It is only God's plan and his dreams for our life that matters, whatever our own dreams might be. For instance, throughout much of my early life, my dream was to be an astronaut. <laughs> okay, I was interested in all things space from as early as I can remember. And Neil Armstrong was my childhood hero. That's because he had the same name as me, okay? And I remember age six, before they landed on the moon, I was born in 63, moon landing in 69, I wrote him a letter, and I asked him to bring me a piece of moon rock back. And I can remember, as a child, thinking of this piece of moon rock, it would be about that big, and it would sit, I put it on the mantelpiece at home. I never got the moon rock, unfortunately. <laughs> but I did get an autographed photo of the Apollo 11 crew, which I've still got somewhere in my loft when I find it. I later realised with sadness that Britain didn't have a manned space programme. And for a long while, the only people who ever became astronauts were either US or Russian Navy pilots. That did change with the space shuttle in the 80s, and they later flew scientific specialists and non-pilots. They even flew a British astronaut or two, but by then I was getting too old and had moved on to other things. <laughs> but there are some other unfortunate facts. Since my late teenage years, I've had an almost pathological hatred of feeling sick or vomiting. 
I get very ill on roller coasters and especially on simulators. And since I'm sure you know this, that weightlessness in space, which is like continuously falling, makes you feel sick. And that aeroplane they train the astronauts in is called the Vomit Comet for a reason, <laughs> to understand weightlessness. And if you, anyone saw the film of First Man about Neil Armstrong, that unbelievable device that they strapped him in and then spun him round to see if he could still function when he was feeling terribly ill, um, <laughs> I was clearly never cut out to be an astronaut. <laughs> um, in Joseph's case, the dreams God gave him did reveal God's eventual plan for his life, but they were God-given dreams, not his own. Joseph did end up doing something dramatic and saving his people, but that is most certainly not everyone's experience. It is an exception rather than the norm. Uh, I went to the wildfires, uh, the last day of the wildfires conference, and a guy called John Mark Coleman, American pastor, made this humorous observation in his talk. And he said to young people, we should definitely say to them, get off your butt and change the world. It's not wrong to encourage young people to get out there and do something for Jesus and to really inspire them that they can change things. But as you get to middle age, maybe 40s or beyond, you, you sometimes need to say to people, well, you didn't change the world, but let's talk about that. We need to do what gives us, God gives us day to day. We need to make the most of every opportunity to live for life for him, whether that's changing the world or not. If that means we never leave our hometown, that is still, and still maybe his plan for our life. We see examples of Joseph doing exactly that. He took every opportunity. When he was in Potiphar's house, he did well, and Potiphar raised him up and gave him a, you know, a, a senior position in his house, in charge of his house. The same thing happened in prison. He excels at it. He does it well, and he's recognized and blessed the result. Whatever he's put before him, he does well. If we look at the whole story of Joseph's life, as Judah said, 17 years in Canaan as a child to a teenager, 13 years in slavery and in prison, he gained power at age 30, and he maintained that for 80 years until he died at age 110. So although 13 years of that time were very hard, it was only a small fraction of his total lifespan. The Bible says this in uh, Psalm 35, For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favour lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. If we are going through a tough time, we will come out of it. It will not last forever. But we must be realistic and recognise that some people do have a tough time for a large part of their lives on this earth. But for believers, those who follow Jesus and believe the promises and the things of the word of God, whether our trial lasts days, weeks, months or many years, it is still limited when compared to eternity with God. We just need to get our perspective right when we're going through these things. And God remained with Joseph, even when Joseph made silly mistakes, especially in those early years, boasting about what God had told him and, you know, I'm going to be in charge of you and better than you. And he, he, God still stayed with him. God raised up Joseph in every dire situation he was in. In Potiphar's house, under slavery, he was raised up. In prison, he was raised up again. And in Pharaoh's court, you know, when he came before Pharaoh, he was raised up to a, you know, a high position. And Joseph also stayed faithful to God, even through those very tough trials. He could easily have thought that God had given up on him and those dreams didn't mean anything, and he could have given up on God himself. So although Joseph could not see while he was going through those hard times, he could not see the end of the story. 
He didn't know what the grand plan was, but God did have a grand plan for Joseph in to keep Joseph and his people safe and to prosper them. So let's just come back to that, what I think is the key verse of the whole story. It sums it all up, the story of Joseph, uh, where he says to the brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That is a most wonderful example, possibly the best example in the Bible of the truth in a very well-known scripture that you, I'm sure you all know in Romans 8.28. So we have that slide, that's it. I've given it in three different translations. They all say roughly the same thing, but it's nice to read them. In the NIV it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Or the ESV, And we know that for those who love God... All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Or the New Living Translation, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. However we translate it, the essence is the same. It tells us that God will use everything that happens to us, all things, that really is all things, for good. It certainly does not mean that everything that happens to us is good. Those things that happened to Joseph were not good. He was, you know, sold into slavery. He, he was accused of raping or uh, trying to rape Potiphar's wife. They were not good. He, he was thrown into prison. But God brought good out of it. Now, there is a debate, and you can see it in those translations, about whether that good is always good for us or just good generally. Uh, and, you know, we should not assume it's necessarily always good for us. Some people go through their whole lives and the good that comes from their life, or their death even, doesn't appear till after they've died. But it does mean that even the, the worst things that happen to us, even our own sin, if we continue to try you know, to love God, to try and follow him, he will bring good out of it. That is an absolute and you know, unassailable promise of God that we just need to get hold of. And I have a, you know, my own story uh, of the truth of that. And I've shared some of this before, but between uh, 2010 and 2012, um, I went through an initial period of extreme anxiety and even psychosis, and then into two years of clinical depression. There's a, a lot to tell, but I won't tell it all, you know, only a small amount now. It's triggered by redundancy, being made redundant from 25 years with the same company. But actually, it was largely my own fault that I went into it, and I realised this at the time. I had not recognised the symptoms before. There were some inklings before. It wasn't sudden, actually, in the end, although there was a, the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, and I had slipped into lazy and undisciplined and also sinful habits over the years. And although that my family, especially Judith and, and the members of the, members of the church, supported me tremendously throughout that time, I actually believed that I didn't deserve it. I believed I'd completely let them down and that I didn't deserve their love and I didn't deserve God's love, in fact. In fact, I'd allowed my faith to drift so badly, that's the truth, but I thought the result of that, that I'd actually blown it with God, and he'd given up on me too. Now, miraculously, God brought me out of that uh, in July 2012. It was over a weekend, but it really was almost in an instant. Um, again, things led up to it, but there was a time when suddenly I realised that actually God still loved me, and that was the most transformation. I mean, I was in tears for, for a couple of hours when I suddenly realised that he was still there. And although I had blown it, he was still there. 
And he showed me, actually, and he ta taught me so much. As I look back on what had happened, I'd seen he had been there all the time, even through when I felt he wasn't. And I could see things that happened. This is all, you know, that, that it could only have been his hand, but I just didn't recognize it. Um, I would not be the same person now if I hadn't been through that. I would not be standing here doing this if I hadn't been through that. So it transformed my life, definitely. Um, so Romans 8.28, an amazing truth if we really believe it and get hold of it. Our faith, if we do, our faith can stand anything that the world can throw at us. Um, but there's another truth in the story of Joseph, and we need to learn this powerfully because it combines with this one. And, and it's the one I stopped believing through my depression. But I stopped believing this truth, but something I absolutely know, like I know the sun's going to come up tomorrow, I know the truth of this, that God was always with him and never left him, even if he didn't feel it. And I know even you don't always feel God's presence, but the truth is he's there and he's with you. And Jesus said this in Matthew, almost the last thing he said before he went back to heaven. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And God said it, and Paul reiterated this in Hebrews 13, 5 to 6. Um, he said, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, and he said it in Deuteronomy 31, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, we can say this, and he's quoting Psalm 118 here, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, afraid. what can mere mortals do to me? As Hannah mentioned at the beginning, this is Pentecost Sunday and the truth of God being with us is even more of a reality today than ever. Ever since that day, in fact, it's been more of a reality. The Holy Spirit dwells inside us on a continuous basis since the day of Pentecost. So God is with us in his Holy Spirit inside us. Even if we can't feel it, he's still there. And amazingly, I, re I read the same set of daily notes pretty much every year. They were written... I think over or about 100 years ago, maybe over 100 years ago, by a guy called Oswald Chambers. They're called My Utmost for His Highest. In our family, we nickname them Slapper Day <laughs> because everyone is a challenge. And if you're a new Christian, I wouldn't recommend him. If you're an older Christian, there is so much truth that this guy got um, over 100 years ago. They really are, uh, there's something fresh I see in them every year. And uh, when I read this one a few days ago, it was dated the 4th of June. Um, so it's just a few days ago, titled The Never Forsaking God, and he quoted this uh, verse from Hebrews that we just read. He himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, as Hebrews 13.5. So let's just read this and, and, and listen to what this guy said. What line of thinking do my thoughts take? Do I turn to what God says or to my own fears? Am I simply repeating what God says or am I learning to truly hear him and then to respond after I've heard what he says? For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I will never leave you, not for any reason. Not my sin, my selfishness, stubbornness, nor waywardness. Have I really let God say to me that he will never leave me? If I have not truly heard this assurance of God, then let me listen again. I will never forsake you. Sometimes it is not the difficulty of life, but the drudgery of it that makes me think God will forsake me. 
When there is no major difficulty to overcome, no vision from God, nothing wonderful or beautiful, just the everyday activities of life, do I hear God's assurance even in these. We have the idea that God is going to do some exceptional thing, that he's preparing and equipping us for some extraordinary work in the future. But as we grow in his grace, we find that God is glorifying himself here and now. At this very moment, if we have God's assurance behind us, the most amazing strength becomes ours, and we learn to sing, glorifying him, even in the ordinary days and ways of life. So as God was watching over Joseph's life, he is also watching over ours. And as God brought good things out of bad for Joseph, he will do the same for us. And as God was always with Joseph, he is always with us. And as God had a plan for Joseph, he also has a plan for us. But remember, God will seldom show you his plan for your life. I mean, Joseph had an inkling and a dream, but he really had no idea what that meant. If he did show us his plan, we would either try and make it happen in our own strength, or much more likely, when we saw it, we would run a mile. Because if we really knew what was going to happen in the future, we might not like what we see. What God will show you is his path, the next step that you need to take. Don't try and think it out. You won't understand it. You won't get it. If you knew the whole plan, you wouldn't. Don't lean on that. Trust in God. And in all your ways, submit to him. Live for him. Do whatever you can for him. Follow his word and his principles, and he will make your paths straight. And that is an accurate translation. Some translations say he will uh, guide your path, but he will make your path straight, meaning take a step, any step, just do what is in front of you to do. And God's guides, I think I've shared this here before, is like a sat-nav. I mean, when you set a destination in the sat-nav, you set out, and you take a wrong turn, it doesn't suddenly say, oh no, you've taken a wrong turn, you're going to die, you're going to crash, you know, <laughs> it doesn't do that. It calmly redirects you to the destination from where you are. Now, it might take a bit longer because now you've got to go around the back roads or something. But it always redirects you. And uh, even every time we take a wrong turn. Now, we can keep ignoring a sat-lab. We can think we know best and we can end up driving over a cliff. But if we listen and obey the instruction, we'll eventually get there. In the same way, if we listen and obey God and allow him to direct us from wherever we are, and that's the amazing thing. Even if we take the circuitous route, we will still do something amazing. God will bring something even better out of that than if you've taken the other route. It's just an amazing to get hold of. Whatever you do, God's plan will take you back the right way and it'll be better or different, you know, and God will still bring good out of it. His plan, actually, if we get hold of that, can survive anything. We can throw at it or the world can throw at it. But we must remember that it may involve hardship as well as joy. And it certainly may not be what we dreamed of when we were a child or even as a young Christian. But we just need to remember that only God's dream or plan for your life will do. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.